I'm Chelsea Laliberte, and this is What Do You Stand For? A new podcast focused on creating real change in an ever-changing world. I'm a nonprofit leader, mental health counselor, activist, and lifelong learner. I've been fortunate to work on some incredible advocacy campaigns and watch change happen before my eyes. I've failed a lot too. But here's what I know for sure. Advocacy in 2018 is quite complicated. In the era of alternative facts and social media movements, it's a tough time to be a champion for issues that are affecting millions of people. There are so many issues, yet so little time, and only so much heart bandwidth and headspace available that one person can handle. Then come the questions. How do you choose a cause to commit to? Does one always need to decide where to stand on an issue? How do you promote an unpopular viewpoint effectively? What's even more challenging is understanding what to do if you're interested in more than posting articles and videos online. It's easy to click share, but it's not so easy to discuss a topic with someone you know who has an opposing viewpoint or ideology. It seems impossible to have conversations with people nowadays who might think differently than you. That uncomfortability and resistance to conflict keeps us silent and isolated when we are merely trying to be heard and understand each other. Rallies and protests of yesteryear are meant to stimulate awareness and calls to action, but to a large percentage of the population seem to create division and confusion unintentionally. Like I said, it's so complicated. Here's the truth. The expanse of our American constitutional claim to freedom is an often underutilized gift. Many Americans don't know about the different rights and liberties afforded to him or her, let alone how to fight for those rights or create change. I believe that needs to change. Join my team and I as we discuss advocacy from all of its angles, social issues, developing an effective campaign, policy work, political strategy, and even the role of media in promoting your ideas. Get ready to nerd out with us because our goal is to teach you what it means to be an advocate in this complex society and how to translate your passion into meaningful action. We'll tackle change making within individuals, families, communities, systems, organizations, counties, states, nations, and even international constructs. We'll feature thought leaders, subject matter experts, activists, legislators, and other elected officials, journalists, and average Joes and Janes. We know you'll learn a thing or two along with us and hopefully get fired up about issues you care about. Join us. To kick this off and allow you to get to know me, your host, I'd like to tell you a bit about my story of passion and purpose. Well, first of all, you should know that I am the executive director and co-founder of Live for Lolly. We are a 501c3 nonprofit organization, and we focus specifically on helping patients and families who are struggling with substance use disorder and dual diagnosis. We fight for their rights. We give them a voice. We help to make them feel safe. So on December 15th, 2008, just shy of 10 years ago, I was sitting at the Minneapolis airport late into the night awaiting the last flight out to Chicago. It was freezing, and there were like three people in the airport. I was catching a connecting flight from LA where I was visiting friends for a few days. I spoke to my mom a few times that day since she took the reins coordinating my airport pickup after my younger brother, Alex, failed. Alex was going through a bit of a rough time. A week prior, he left his university abruptly after getting beat up and mugged by a bunch of guys taking solace in the only thing that could comfort him, weed. I was super worried about him and frustrated with my parents, who were only now beginning to realize that Alex was battling demons we couldn't quite put a finger on. 
Little did we know, young Alex was dependent on opioids like heroin, the prescription painkiller Norco, or fentanyl, and benzodiazepines, or benzos, which are prescription and synthetic anti-anxiety medications such as Xanax or Klonopin. Secrets fueled by shame became a part of him. Looking in his eyes meant looking into emptiness. The shakiness and fear in his voice from a week prior, when he called me to let me know he was heading home from school, was on replay in my head. I was scared for him. He didn't really know how to ask for what he needed. That just wasn't him. He was kind enough to drop me off at the airport on the way to LA. He picked me up bright and early, with a McDonald's Egg McMuffin ready and waiting. He seemed uncharacteristically energized to be up so early. The hour-long drive from my house in Palatine, Illinois, to Midway Airport was quick and enjoyable. We didn't say much, but enjoyed each other's company, listening to Insane in the Membrane and Wu-Tang Clan. More than weed, Alex loved rap music, and so did I. It was an area we bonded over. When we pulled up to the airport, Alex got out and helped me with my bags. He gave me a big hug and said, I love you, sis. I said, I love you too. Be good. Then I walked away and only turned around for a moment to watch him drive away. Flash forward three days later, the flight from Minneapolis to Chicago was smooth, and I found a sense of peace looking out over the lit-up towns and cities surrounded by piles of snow. I came up with a plan to stage an intervention on Alex when I returned home, regardless of whether or not my parents wanted to remove their heads from the stand and join me. Upon landing, I headed to the baggage claim and waited for 30 minutes to come out empty-handed. Luggage lost, a long day of travel, and a hurting heart. I walked out of the airport and saw my dad coming towards me. What struck me immediately was the look on his face. He was stark white and completely out of sorts. Immediately, my stomach started to turn and I knew something was wrong. He gave me a hug and I asked him, what's the matter, dad? He took my hand and we walked together over to my stepmom's truck. My body was fighting to get in. It was like my brain knew that what I was about to face would require all survival instincts. My heart was beating incredibly fast. I started to get dizzy. And when the door opened, the look on my mom's face said it all. I looked at all three of my parents and I asked my dad, where's Alex? What happened to him? I knew he was dead the second I looked at my dad's face. I had never seen such fear in that man's eyes. And then the words came out, your brother died today. I blacked out for 10 minutes. My dad said that I just screamed and yelled, I told you this was next if you didn't wake up. My mom could not even look at me, but immediately I felt empathy for her. Regardless of how many times I asked her to take him for an evaluation, because that's what all the websites said to do when you think someone is addicted to drugs. I shook her and asked her, how did he die? Was it heroin? All she could do was nod yes, a heroin overdose. In that moment, my entire life changed. Early grief felt like floating. My brain, heart, organs, and nerves are all gravityless as though I was walking around in space. Memories from before Alex's death hid deep in my limbic system. I couldn't remember people's names for the longest time. I didn't laugh for a few weeks. I barely ate. I couldn't sleep. I was scared to be in my house, yet I didn't want to leave, in effort to hold on to any signs of him communicating with us from the other side. Every time the garage door would open, I would think it was going to be him, and this would all be a bad dream. And I desperately needed to come back to reality because what I was about to find out about my brother, his friends, our community, and the perfect storm of a public health crisis was going to require stamina and strength I didn't know I had. At Alex's Shiva, we sat around for three days, eating, telling stories, praying, <sighs> but I was barely existing. Then one of Alex's friends, Kayla, sat down next to me. She said, this whole heroin thing is getting so big and it's getting bigger by the second. I didn't know what she meant. She explained, though, that Alex is one of many impacted by opioids. She was terrified that all of her friends would die. 
It was in that moment I knew that the rest of my life would mean living for him, in honor of him. So on that couch at his shiva, we came up with an idea that would help change the course of a public health crisis in our little neck of the woods in suburban Chicago. Live for Lolly was born. However, many things needed to occur within me to prepare for the journey I was about to embark on. I was still dealing with unresolved grief, not understanding substance use, blaming my parents, blaming myself, going to counseling to deal with the aftermath of abandonment and heartache, grappling with my own personal feelings about addiction and human behavior, and grappling with my own behaviors that led me to a fateful evening. In 2011, I was living in LA while the opioid epidemic raged on across the country. I went to a benefit to hear a profoundly inspiring man speak. It was Ethan Nadelman, the then executive director of Drug Policy Alliance. He was making a case for marijuana decriminalization, criminal justice reform, and treating people with substance use disorders instead of incarcerating them. And it changed everything for me because it made me realize for the first time that what happened to Alex was not his fault. And our policies have created an unsafe environment that does not promote safety, human rights, or dignity. It promotes shame and punitive responses to the most human of behaviors. I learned that night that more than half of the 2 million people incarcerated struggle with mental health and substance use issues, among other disparities. Prison is not a place for people. Most of the prisons in America are not even safe for animals to live in. The public perception associated with substance use is one of judgment and otherism, which was taught to me outright through programs like D.A.R.E. Ironically enough, Alex won the D.A.R.E. challenge, but we all know how that turned out. Our societal response has created a dire situation for communities of color and other vulnerable populations, yet substance use is an incredibly common behavior. Seeking pleasure, avoiding pain, changing our brains, we are hardwired for it. So why are we punished for it? What I know now is that safer, evidence-based laws would have made Alex safer. It filled me with rage that our systems failed him. So I did what any other sane person would do. I quit my six-figure job, I moved back to Illinois, and took over what my dad calls our glorified memorial barbecues to become more than an organization to honor one person's life. I wanted to create real change in honor of my baby brother. I was fortunate enough to link up with Kathy Kane Willis and Stephanie Schmitz-Bechteler, researchers now with Chicago Urban League, who at the time headed up Roosevelt University's Illinois Consortium on Drug Policy. They were one of very few institutes across the country focused on data as the driver for drug policy change. They put me to work as their intern, and I learned everything I possibly could. The first time I heard the word naloxone was on a conference call with other impacted family members to discuss promoting this idea that we could reverse opioid overdoses. Naloxone is a benign medication used to reverse accidental opioid overdoses. I was sold in a second and didn't understand why people had such ambivalence about a sensible, preventable action. It wasn't until we actually went out and sold the concept of reversing overdoses to police and health departments or, if you can believe it, recovery groups, that we were met with confusion and fear. It confused me that public safety entities and a community of people in recovery wouldn't want to promote life and a second, third, or 90th chance at it. But as I understood the implications around the situation, I came to realize that we're going to have to change the culture. We need to be patient, yet vigilant, and we need to bring out the big guns. Legislators, community leaders, physicians, professional associations, people who were saved by naloxone, and a hell of a lot of common sense education. Over the next five years, Live for Lolly went from a small, community-run group trying to build awareness in one town to a mobilized, statewide advocacy incubator with a data-driven mission, programs, and priorities. It's humbling to me to know that we have helped tens of thousands of people. And I say we because none of this was just me. 
It has been run by a grassroots army of impacted parents, siblings, grandparents, children, professionals, people in recovery, and humans who simply want to help. But it didn't come without a knockdown, drag out fight to be heard. It didn't come without failing a few times, learning from our mistakes, getting up off the ground, and fighting back harder. It's been agonizing and amorous at the same time, and we still have decades to go. Because the truth is, this public health crisis took the lives of more than 72,000 Americans in 2017, according to the CDC. More than car crashes, more than homicides, more than suicides. We have only scratched the surface of what can be done when the status quo is challenged. There are many other organizations like Live for Lally out there doing amazing work. Nationally, we have Harm Reduction Coalition, Drug Policy Alliance, Smart Recovery, American Society of Addiction Medicine, Rebel Recovery, and more local groups like Buddy's Purpose, New Directions Addiction Recovery Services, Jolt Foundation, Hero, Path, and Perfectly Flawed. And yet we all struggle for funds, resources, capacity, and of course, the struggle is always real when it comes to stigma. Seeing them flourish pushes me on. It's heartbreaking and inspiring to process this because losing someone to an overdose death is incredibly painful. It never impacts just one person. It impacts families, social circles, and communities. It hardens us, which contributes to an increasingly isolated and segregated America in the middle of a political climate that is already polarizing. Human brains can only handle so much trauma. Instead of blaming people for choosing to cope through substances, we should be expecting it and preparing to support impacted families. But as a society, we have been very reactive when it comes to issues viewed as a choice. We say things like, they made their bed, let them lie in it, when we know it's not that black and white. History and science have shown us how reactionary responses to common human behaviors can be catastrophic. Take a look at the HIV AIDS crisis, which at its core is the epitome of what happens when hatred, judgment, and ignoring science exists all at the same time. It took decades and hundreds of thousands of deaths before access to quality treatment, dignity, and hope became the priority. And today, some people in America and other developed nations can live a full, active, happy life with AIDS if they are in a socioeconomic position to do so and if they have access. But how many had to die to get there? With addiction and overdose, it's a different dynamic, but with similar principles. Until hatred, judgment, and ignoring science is eliminated, we will not see an end to this. It took me a decade to understand these intrinsic dynamics, and I am fully aware that we will not have solved this crisis until long after I am gone. However, I will be riding the wave of this until I am old and gray, and I am happy to do it in the name of justice, dignity, and compassion for humans, no matter their path in life. So, boys and girls and other, the first lesson of advocacy is the recognition that Rome was not built in a day. Remember, before Rome was the thriving, powerful nation of Julius Caesar, it was a different society ruled by the Etruscans with a uniquely developed social structure, customs, mores, and a culture that cannot be forcibly changed just because change is asked for. Patience and perseverance are required to make an impact. But so is grit, boldness, and unwillingness to accept things as they are, just because they are that way. And in my case, a broken heart. For the past five years, the two gentlemen sitting here with me have been instrumental in creating change across Lake County, Illinois. But for me as an activist, I remember back in 2011, desperately looking for answers to this overdose crisis and feeling totally frustrated, confused, worried, and at times hopeless. So I consider you guys to be true mentors to me. 
and fearless risk takers who really went up against the status quo to fight for something bigger than yourselves. So now you have a lot to live up to in this interview. Congratulations and good luck. <laughs> so with me today, our former police chief and current CEO of NICASA Behavioral Health Services, Bruce Johnson, and the person least likely to take credit for anything ever, which is one of the things I love about him, father of three, husband of Dee Dee, and newly ordained wedding officiant. <laughs> Congratulations. And last but not least, uh, Police Chief of Round Lake Park Police Department and former head of the Lake County Metropolitan Enforcement Group, George Falenko, who is also one of the most genuine and no BS guys I know, a husband and father and friend to many. So welcome. Thrilled to have you guys with me today. Thank you for coming. Thanks for having us. Absolutely. And I think I'd also like to mention that together, the two of us, along with uh, Lake County State's Attorney Mike Nierheim, developed the Lake County Opioid Initiative, which has reached national attention that we are all really proud of and fortunate to have occurred. So I'm just going to jump right in. So tell us from your perspective about Lake County Opioid Initiative, what it means to you and what has resulted from this great experiment. What I would say is that I think it's an example of bringing together Lake County stakeholders and partners to come together and look at a serious problem and try to come up with creative strategies and solutions. That sounds easy, but it wasn't necessarily easy. It really took a catalyst to stir the pot. And in this case, it was you, Chelsea. You were the catalyst. So for a long time, George and I would have discussions, Mike Nurheim, others, we'd, we'd have discussions. And in George's case, you know, I remember specifically a conversation he had with me saying, you know, look, there's people dying. People are being dropped off in my town. This is an issue. What are we doing about it? And um, he's asking me that from a treatment perspective. And at that time, Chelsea, you became this person that kept asking questions and saying, what are we going to do about it and what can we do about it? So I think the idea, and Lake County is really good at this, when you have a problem and you ask people to come together to look at, in this case, the issue of heroin and opioids and our communities within the county, what are we doing separately in our silos and what can we do together as a whole I think what happened is a lot of well-intentioned people came together and they said, yeah, we really do have to do something about this. Mm -hmm. And I think throughout the years that we've now been doing that, there still is a voice in the back that keeps pushing us and keeps trying to stretch the opioid initiative to do more. And the voice continues to be you, Chelsea. So mm -hmm. I think our committees are you know, really functional. We didn't start that way but we have functional committees. So I think we've become sophisticated because we've brought a lot of people together that have taken ownership of this issue in our communities. And I think that this is probably one of the best examples that has ever been in place in Lake County. And the thing is, we don't just get together, we actually get together and try to accomplish something. And that, as you know, in this field, it's constantly changing. So you have to adapt and grow your efforts. And I think we're doing that. Wow, solid. And like, I don't even know how to respond to that. I just think that when a door opens for you and you have an opportunity to enter it and then do something really cool with it, because you actually have people who are listening to you, then magic can happen. But how many opportunities like that are, are given? What about you, George? What are your thoughts about Elcoy? Well, I'm going to we correct Bruce a little bit. He's being much too kind about our conversation. 
I, lo- I reached the level of frustration, and, and he's right. People dying, not just in my town, but all around the area regionally. And Bruce is, at that time, was the only person that I knew and trusted in a, in a recovery field. I did walk into his office, and like you said, I'm a man with a few words. And what I said to him is, what are you going to do about this problem? There might have been an expletive. And yeah, <laughs> there, there certainly was an expletive. And then in turn, he gave an expletive answer to me. Well, I think at the beginning, there were a lot of expletives because we were just pissed. Right. Then to his credit, several days ago or a week or two later, I had a phone call from him and he just said, you need to come over here and meet somebody. And that was the first time Chelsea and I had met. And that was actually the first time I'd ever heard the term naloxone and what it was. And I had a number of questions for her. What does it do? Does it do anything bad to you? And I had all the right answers. And my next question, how do I get it? How fast can I get it? And how soon can I get it into the hands of police officers? Well, we came to find out that that wasn't an easy road. It took a while. The initiative started out with four. Because one of the things I do clearly remember us discussing is some of the things that we were going to have to overcome specifically with law enforcement and just the stigma of addiction, no matter whether it was alcohol, opioids, and I've learned a lot of lessons since. And we were fortunate enough to have a new, young, very open-minded state's attorney, and we had decided that we needed somebody in a level or a position countywide to lead this because this just was not a local issue. It was not my small town's issue. It was countywide. And as you know, now we know it's national. What the, the task force has done is just amazing. I have learned more from attending those meetings and meeting individuals who have lost friends, family, I've learned more from people who are in recovery than I can ever imagine. As a police officer, sure, we do draw a certain picture in our minds of what addicts are. And Hold on, i got to correct you really quickly. People with an addiction. People can with we, an addiction. Can we agree to use that term? Absolutely. People first. Thank you. People first. Person first. And see, the word addict, again, is something that's been overused. And it's something that, you know, it's a lesson learned. Absolutely. And you just get to understand that this is not just something that somebody decides to do one day. There's a process involved here. These are human beings. This is not just a an issue or a problem that affects you uh, mentally, but physically. And it's probably one of the most heart-wrenching and difficult things I've seen and worked with in my career. The task force... I learn something every day from some of the initiatives, and I love the fact that Chelsea is a person that's not scared to take a chance, think outside the box, and I'm all for that. And as fast as it can happen, I mean, I think it's happening slower than I'd like to even see it happen, but I understand. I mean, there's a lot more that we can do. The task force is a starting point. But I think that with what you're bringing to the table and how you've enlightened me to things that I never would have even imagined years ago, thinking about needle exchanges, some of the other adverse effects of these issues, including disease. We're going to get to that. We're going to get to that because I I do have a specific question for you about harm reduction. But I'm going to jump into another question here. Can you explain, because I think a lot of people might think, 
why do you need a bunch of cops to do this work? And, and little did I know at the time, and little do most people know, is that a lot of the nucleus of safety in communities happens at the public safety level, whether or not you want to accept that. It does. So my question for you guys is, briefly, can you describe what community policing is and where it's going? Well... I can tell you that over at least the last several months, I've been enlightened. I've had the ability to go back out onto the street and actually work patrol and hands-on, have direct contact with the community. To me, what I'm seeing is it's communicating back and forth, exchanging, reassuring the community about what actually our mission and what our jobs actually entail, the positive end of it and bringing these programs to the community and developing that trust factor. And I know everybody talks about that transparency, trust. It's very difficult. Especially but, right now, right? You have like media yes. elements. You have, you know, you yeah. were one of the first departments to get the little cameras, right? On your... Correct. The on your cameras. Right. right. So you have this interesting dynamic where it's like there's no secrets, right, anymore. So now there's more opportunity for exposure. And what that does in an advocacy standpoint, it allows people to say, I don't like this. This feels wrong to me. But at the same time, what a lot of people don't know is there's a reason behind why some activities take place. So, Bruce, you know, you're in a unique position because you have spent decades in the military and as a police officer and eventually a police chief. And now as the leader of a substance use treatment program that serves the entire county, how has substance use and law enforcement intersected and how has it changed over time? It's an evolution, right? That's how I think of myself. I've hopefully evolved in some regard. So, you know, from the policing standpoint, I think this is an example of community policing. So police chiefs within a community, you know, are usually really accessible. And what they should have are partnerships with those stakeholders in the community, right? Mm -hmm. But one of the components of community policing is truly problem solving. So when you bring the community together to help solve problems, whatever those problems are, it could be neighbor issues, it could be criminal activity somewhere. But when you bring the stakeholders together to think about how to solve a problem, that's an example of what the Lake County Opiate Initiative is. Here's a problem. Got to bring these people together. And in this case, Mike Nurheim helps to facilitate that as the state's attorney. But, you know, when we think about the first thing that Elcoy was able to do, which was to, to put Narcan in the hands of our first responders, in this case, law enforcement. For years, obviously, fire departments have had that. So that was a problem. They're there first. You know, law enforcement, nine out of ten times, is there before the fire departments, right? So precious seconds are at stake. Right. So law enforcement said, okay, we need this. What do we have to do? So they did have to bring some other stakeholders to the table. There were some obstacles and barriers, but they overcame them. You know, I started policing in the early 80s. And when I started policing, I think it, even then it was much more reactive. So you get a, at that time on the radio and you responded and there was preventive patrol and those kinds of things but there wasn't actually problem solving taking place between police and the community so it was just like oh another yeah, guy who beat up his wife yeah, oh take the another report, or right, burglary or right. drug use or right. whatever else when it becomes an issue how do you attack that issue and i think law enforcement has become a hub within the community to figure out how to do those things so they see the end results and the consequences of these issues. It certainly gets brought to their attention by the public, by elected officials, by whoever. So now 
they can't solve it on their own. I mean, there's very few of them compared to how many people there are in the community, right? So as great as law enforcement is, they're nowhere near what they are when they have the community partnering with them. The job of law enforcement, it's not about putting people into jail. That's not what it's about. It's turned into how do we help those that need help instead of putting them in jail. In 1829, where community policing actually started, there's a really smart guy from England, uh, Sir Robert Peel, and he talked about what the police should be doing in the community. And what I love what he said is that to, to look for success and efficiency in policing isn't to look at how many arrests they make and how many people they send to jail. Really, it's the absence of crime and disorder. Hmm. That's what true success is. This is 1829. Guy was pretty smart because it's still true today. So if law enforcement can figure out how to have absence of crime and disorder, they are succeeding. So it's not numbers. It's not putting somebody into jail. It's not affecting the family in that regard. Look, if you need help, we need to figure out how to get you help instead of having you incarcerated and the consequences that that brings to the individual and the family and the community and how much it costs all of us. And what is really interesting, though, is that we have labeled substance use as a crime. Yeah. And so Sir Robert Peel, you know, <laughs> in, in, in probably with the best laid intentions, you know, we have decided as a society that we are going to criminalize substance use. And so you have a problem right there that is never going away. We are never going to have a society where people don't use substances. So I think the challenge in that is how do we tweak this? Because it's, it's currently not working, but... Again, like what's interesting is I was a person when I started doing this work who thought, oh, no, we cannot, we, nobody belongs in jail for any, for any crime related to, to substance use. And it's interesting because I have had so many like slap in the face moments in my career where I realized that because they were involved in the criminal mm -hmm. justice system, their life was saved. And so I think we have to all reframe how we're really looking at this to do what Sir Robert Peel was suggesting to do, which is use the systems effectively, not in the way necessarily that we have been yeah. historically. So I, I appreciate that reference because it's an interesting thing to bring up. So not to cut you off, yeah. but on a different note, George, last, last year we kicked off a really, really cool revolutionary program in, in Lake County, which was a collaborative between the Round Lake Park Police Department, Live for Lolly, and the Lake County Health Department. We set up shop operating a harm reduction outreach program right in front of your office. We handed out clean needles and other safe supplies, naloxone, food, toiletries, and provided people with immediate access to treatment if they wanted it. It was the first of its kind in the county. And as a police chief, I would like to know, what was it like for you to commit to this approach and what did you learn? Well, remember, I went in covertly as a volunteer. Right, you showed up with your jeans on. My jeans, which is probably uh, really and smart. I came to your training and wanted to learn a lot more about what you were doing. And I was strictly there as a volunteer and observer. Mm -hmm. It was very enlightening. It was educational. It was controversial. I'll have to give kudos to my village who supported it 100%. I think the most interesting part about it was being able to, in my role as a volunteer, talk to some of the individuals that were there and not, I can't say I can't fully understand their dilemma, but at least I, I got an understanding of who they were. And it was also amazing to watch you, and I don't know how you did it, and I wish I could have listened in and caught the magic, but there were people pulling up that were reluctant, 
thought it may, may have been some kind of a trap. I don't know. Probably. Uh, probably. But you managed to, uh, to convince him it wasn't and convince him to come in and participate. And I, I remember we started seeing the same individuals return weekly. I thought it was a very, again, thinking outside the box uh, program. I, I believe the city of Chicago had tried it in limited capacity also, but it was the first of its kind in Lake County. I think those programs are essential. After that, I did my homework. I went home and just browsed the internet and searched for programs like that internationally and found that, you know, Europe has been very successful in reducing all sorts of problems within the communities. And I think that we need to move forward with those programs in Lake County and the Collar Counties. And it's just one part of the solution. But an important one. But a very important one. And I think that my peers need to witness and get a hands-on perspective, whether it be covertly, uh, like I, but actually to make contact with individuals. It's easy enough to sit behind a desk, but you need to get out there and really, you know, and and I want to use this term, uh, and please don't take it wrong, you really need to get your hands dirty. You You need to walk into a situation and see it hear it, smell it, understand it before you really can make a judgment and say, no, this is wrong. We shouldn't be going in this direction. Statistics are great and analytics are great, but actually looking you right in the face, eye to eye, and talking to you as a human being and understanding what's going on and seeing what types, what those programs can accomplish, that's what we need to take the next step, and I'm strictly speaking for my peers in law enforcement. Naloxone was not an easy sell. But but also, right, but also it took us five years to get to where we are before we actually launched the harm reduction program. So we had the opportunity to prove to the citizens of the county that this was a trusting entity to the point where over a three-month period of time, we successfully saw 75 people which is kind of a lot of people when you're only there like 12 Saturdays in a row. And so much so that the Lake County Health Department has now taken it over and has specifically set it up in Waukegan, where you have a very large using population who are also struggling with mental illness, a lot of veterans, a population really who it it was probably much better done there because there's not as much of a transportation issue and other factors. But I couldn't agree more with you and I appreciate your, your standpoint. I uh, have like eight more questions, but I don't think we're going to have time. So I'm going to jump into some other fun ones. Just briefly, maybe you can respond. Um, So in your opinion, how much has politics actually played a role in executing or hindering our work? I think it's actually helped. So local politics anyways. You know, when we wanted to do text-to-tip, we went in front of the Lake County Board and they decided to fund it as an initiative. And text-to-tip is a, is a really groundbreaking uh, interventional program where anybody can text in in a crisis that they're having, and it was, it's been marketed to young people, right. but anybody can use it. Right. And on the other line is a licensed social worker ready to help them out. And thousands and thousands and thousands of, especially our adolescents, are, are using it. And it's, you know, to have the ability to reach out and be able to communicate with a licensed, you know, professional and be able to avert that crisis... I mean, there's lives being saved by that work. So then the other things are that, you know, we can just point to is that when we want to do something, we can get support from our elected officials. So, you know, whether it is changing laws, 
you know, in Illinois, or it is enacting laws nationally, we can get those things done with our elected officials. So I would say this experience, they've been much more of a positive and a help for us. You know, we have local elected officials, county, you know, state, township that want to have information being disseminated by forums, by any means to their constituents. Our message is getting out through many of their newsletters. So we're able to, to expand, you know, communications in that regard. It's not a perfect situation. I'm not saying that, but I think that there's been a lot of support from our elected officials. And I think we wouldn't be as far as, as we are without them. It was almost like we made a case for it. And then, mm-hmm. and then in a way they were like, okay, we're going to get on board with this because they knew that they had to. I mean, That's 300 well, agencies in the county were saying, were, we're doing this. Right. I you felt know? they were compelled to. I mean, yeah, it's, absolutely. Like, it's uh, you know, a lot of these initiatives, I mean, this, and I've got a perspective on politics. You can't live without it, but you have to live with it in order to get things done. This, happened, this was something that was pushed, and it was something that was made public, and it just started steamrolling. And again, I'm not political mastermind by any means but it's one of the beautiful things about you though george because you, know, you resist it i love it yeah I, I don't i'm not a real big fan of it but i understand i have to work and live within it but when you force their hand this is what happens now suddenly this is a national movement this is an epidemic it's a crisis it's you know we're, we're trying to do i mean i was reading something uh today online about all this funding that, that was just released from the federal government and again, you're shaking your head. I don't know where it goes. For too. those listening, yeah. I'm shaking my head. I just because don't know. While laws are yeah. critical, what happens with the money? Where does it go? Is it comprehensive enough? Is it going to agencies that actually are going to do the appropriate thing with it? Like, I have so many questions when this comes up. So, like, mm-hmm. I what I hear you guys say is this is it's needed. We absolutely need our political partners, but at the same time, it's not just up to them. Like right. we, the community is powerful enough to, to stand firm with that. But so in, in terms of Lake County Opioid Initiative though, could this have been done anywhere else? Like, can you take the model and drop it into another community and say, go? I think it's like communities. So a community needs champions and sometimes they're not the champions you expect, but you have to have people that are willing to give of themselves, sacrifice, take risks. So yes, it can be done elsewhere, but you you couldn't do it for them. It has to be organic. It, It can be similar. It can have some of the same objectives and goals. It can have some of the same even outcomes, but it has to come from within. So if you get caring individuals that come together to solve a specific problem, that does happen all over the country. I mean, it really does. I think we're lucky in Lake County because we're small enough that, I mean, it's, we're a big county. Yeah, but a very diverse county. It is. But, you know, when you ask people to come together, you can get everyone together. You can get every police chief and the sheriff's department together. You can get every fire department together. You call the state's attorney, you actually could talk to the state's attorney. Not like some places, you know, that would never happen. So Lake County has that ability that, you know, you can do that. And I know it can be replicated elsewhere. I think, though, that you hit on something that we're doing something that's not common because pretty much everything we do is countywide. So usually you have a community or a city, you know, some municipality that's doing something, but next door it's not happening. In Lake County, everything that we've done, we have spread out throughout the whole county. 
So it's a county-wide initiative. And I think that's what's made us the first in yeah. some regards. Well, it's, the a, it's a unique demographic because there's no one city that's large enough to handle a program like this. But together, we can. We've come together on tons of initiatives and agree. And like Bruce said, one phone call, police chiefs are there. One phone call, the fire chiefs are there. The state's attorney, I mean, and I talked to some of my peers in uh, some of the larger counties. It's incredible. They don't believe me that you can actually walk into his office unannounced and there he is and ask him, what do you think of this? And also the amazing thing about it is we're not always going to agree and we will debate. I love that, though, because that's what America and what our county is all about. It's taking different opinions and saying, anytime you say I'm right and you're wrong, you are losing an opportunity to actually create change, I think. One of the things we've epically failed at as a culture, and we're experiencing this right now with the current political climate, is listening to each other. I have never seen anything like this in my life yet. I'm only 33, but it's profound how afraid we are to listen to each other because what would that say about my perspective? What would that say about me? What would that say about what my belief system is? And I think that there's a fear there. So, and and I guess thinking about that, and I think Bruce, you, you kind of, what I felt when I heard you talking about this, you were alluding to culture. We have established a culture in Lake County that has open door and Most people won't ever walk into Mike's office, but they know that they can. And I think that that's really where he's been really successful in his campaign. Last question that I want to ask you guys. So what approaches do you think that average citizens should take to address any issue of importance in their community? And what do you think they should avoid? Because there are good strategies, and sometimes sometimes people will call their police chief and say, I want to meet with you, I want to talk to you over and over and over again, and they won't get a call back or anything. What works well for you guys? I think one of the strengths we have in our communities is our young people. You know, our young people have proven that they, well, first, really smart. They really get things. George and I, George, I'll speak for you, we're kind of like dinosaurs technology and, you know, all the social media and, you know, podcasts and, you know, et cetera, (laughs) the ways to communicate and get messages and really to be able to harness that, our young people can do that. I think they have to be a little bit like you, Chelsea, in the regard that, you know, you persevered, you were very persistent in your passion. Our young people are passionate, but that passion in this case needs a way forward. You know, your passion was contagious. It was quick to get a few of us to go, hey, you know, we really do need to do so. You held us accountable, which is the next question is, you know, how do you influence the chief or the mayor, elected officials or whoever it is, the school board, that the passion, persistence, coming with facts and coming with new ideas in your case, but explaining them so that they could be understood and then we could execute something so that we could respond. But I think the strength is in all of our communities, whoever you are, if you have that passion, you know, there's like-minded people out there and in numbers truly comes, you know, a response and you actually can, it's not necessarily the squeaky wheel gets the grease, but you have to make sure you're advocating, you know, for you, you were advocating to do nothing less than save lives. And when you're advocating for that, it's hard for someone to go, 
to dismiss that. I guess that's the right answer. Well, it wasn't actually that easy because in 2010, when we had kicked this off, drug users, mm-hmm. people who die from an overdose, isn't mm-hmm. that really something they do to themselves? Like, right. this was literally the response I would get from they someone like, stop they using. should just stop using. Yeah. Or even today, you have some communities out there who are like, let them die. Or, I don't or they'll say, or I don't want to pay for that. Or yeah. three times. We'll reverse the yeah. overdose three times <laughs> right. and then we're done. Like, would you say that to a diabetic? Like, would you just be like, that's just criminal. so you can eat a cheeseburger three times right. and you can go into, you know, you can go into deficiency state. Right. And, and, you know, it's just, it's mind boggling to me. I think what worked well for this case was that you literally had a story that was real yeah. with my brother's death yeah. where you could say it out loud and anybody listening to you could think that could be my kid. And I think if you can emotionally connect with people and be real with them, you can rail off as much data as you want, mm-hmm. but unless you hit them in the heart or in the gut where it, where it might hurt and they can put themselves in your shoes, I don't know that you could be as effective. So it has, like you said, it has to come from a real place of passion and concern, not from an ego-driven place. You really right. have to remove that from the equation completely to get things done. A little ego helps. A little mm-hmm. ego, but not the full ego. Because you care. Because you, you and you have to succeed and you want a successful outcome. So the ego part is getting it accomplished, whatever it takes. And thank you for bringing up outcomes. Outcomes of Lake County Opioid Initiative. Are you ready, folks? We've got almost 300 overdose reversals. 438 people walked into a police department and said, I want help. And they got help. That's revolutionary to me in this day and age, especially with all the misnomers that are out there. But the third thing that I think is really unique, we have reduced deaths significantly. Sure, it's not perfect. We're going to lose about 80 or 90 people this year in the county. It could be 490, statistically. Though That's real. That has happened. And that is not just because we asked for it. That's because we did something about it. I can't say this enough. Without you guys, we literally wouldn't have been able to do this. By me asking for your help and you saying yes, we committed to something that changed, I think, all of our lives because we actually got to see what the power of community can do when people just say yes and make a difference. So I want to thank you for joining us today and uh, shining some light on advocacy around the addiction and overdose crisis. Is, are there any final thoughts you want to share before we kick you guys out of here? Yeah, I'm going to contradict you if it weren't for the power of Chelsea. Yeah. Uh- <laughs> That's when they happened. You mean or the you loud, bold, annoying voice You of held me. us accountable. <laughs> wow, wow. You did. You brought this together. I like to blame my mom. She's the one who gave me the Jewish, the Jewish blood chutzpah. <laughs> she really did. It was a great thing. Well, you know what? And I will say this. Kudos to my parents because they yeah. never told me I couldn't do it. They were always my biggest champions. And they said, throw us under the bus if you have to. Say whatever you need to say to get them to listen. I really commend them because they put their pride to the side for a much bigger cause. Just like you guys did politically. It can be really, really tough, I'm sure, as law enforcement leaders to say, we're just going to do this thing. You know, like I could get fired. I could get ostracized from the community, but we're just going to do this thing. So, Charles, the other thing you did. I love you guys. We love you, too. The other thing you did is you've made Live for Lolly into a force multiplier. So all the volunteers, big hearted, unbelievable volunteers that you have that go out forth into the community and affect change. And our partners, you know, some of them we haven't mentioned, but you know, we were talking about some of those numbers. Our coroner is doing a great job to give us information that is also helpful and life-saving. And that doesn't happen in the rest of the country. Our public defender, all the 
entities that are involved in this that help so much. Think about what you've done. You were that stone and the ripple in the water that started and it's gotten bigger and bigger and spread out and your staff does that in all of our communities. So it's fantastic. We're honored and lucky to do it. Those call, I guess, got a call from a, a way out participant earlier this week who said, I just wanted to thank you for what you've done for me. And there's no, oh my God, I'm going to cry right now. That is worth everything to hear the voice of a person who is alive, but really it was his choice. He said yes. It's a ripple effect, like you said. So if you want to learn more about the Lake County Opioid Initiative, please visit opioidinitiative.org. Thank you for joining us for the very first episode of What Do You Stand For, where we are committed to educating and inspiring Americans to stand up and take action regarding causes they care about. I am Chelsea Laliberte. I'm here with Bruce Johnson. I'm here with Chief George Falenko. And we hope you'll share what you learned with others. You can connect with us and learn more on our social media pages on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, or at liveforlolly.org. Take care. If substance use in any way impacts you, you are not alone. Help and support are available. Live for Lolly is a 501c3 nonprofit organization dedicated to providing support, safety, and education for patients and families impacted by substance use disorders and other mental health conditions. For information or help, please visit us at liveforlolly.org or on any of our social media channels. Call 844 584 5254 or email us at info at liveforlolly.org.